0: talk about infertility and adoption. On today's show, we're going to be talking about intrauterine insemination, increasing the odds of success. You know, even if you are an old seasoned veteran at, uh, at infertility, and certainly if you're new to infertility or a single mom or a lesbian couple, I think you're really going to enjoy the information on this show. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear.
1: There aren't a great deal of supplements that have, again, a dramatic impact on the semen analysis, but one of the ones that has been suggested is antioxidant treatment for men with teratospermia or abnormally shaped sperm. Um, So, uh, you know, vitamin C, uh, selenium, other types of antioxidants have been used as supplements in an effort to improve a man's sperm shape.
0: I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family. We are the national infertility and adoption education and support nonprofit. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We are a re- weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model. That way you can listen whenever and wherever you want. You can also subscribe to this podcast to get notice of each new episode, and you can do that on whatever device it is you are listening or app it is that you are listening to this uh, to this show on. Just uh, click subscribe there, or you can go to the radio page of our website, creatingafamily.org slash category slash radio show, and uh, you can click subscribe there. This show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. We are approaching the deadline, my friends, on getting your videos submitted to the Heart to Heart Video Contest. Um, The idea behind this contest is for those of you who have been successful, um, to give hope to those who are at the more beginning stages of treatment. And uh, so if you have been successful using uh, one of the fertility meds by Faring Fertility, Excuse me. You can submit a video, uh, and if you win, you will get a ten thousand dollar education fund. Uh, and then there—that's the grand prize winner. And there will also be four runners up this year, and each of the four runners up will get a four thousand dollar education fund. The deadline is August thirty first. So you need to go to their website, hearttoheartcontest.com, dot com, and uh, figure out what it is you need to do to make your submittal. Uh, And I really would love for somebody from our uh, community, our audience, to win. That would be so cool. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors. And these are organizations who believe in our mission of providing unbiased, medically accurate, information and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility. They have 10 offices and 21 physicians. That's right, 21 physicians throughout New Jersey. And they maintain an IVF delivery rate well above the national average. We also have Manhattan Cryobank. They are dedicated to helping clients have healthy babies. by analyzing a client's DNA in combination with the DNA of prospective sperm donors to provide the client with a personalized catalog of safer donor matches. In addition to these gold sponsors, we also have other great sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an infertility service provider, please consider using one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, just a, a, a whole host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. On today's show, we're going to be talking about interuterine insemination, how to increase the odds of success. IUIs, or it's also known as artificial insemination, is is often the first step in infertility treatment or used by single moms or lesbian couples. Uh, Today our guest expert is Dr. Marcy McGuire. She is a reproductive endocrinologist at RMA New Jersey. She is also a clinical professor of reproductive endocrinology at the Robert Wood Johnson's Medical School. Dr. McGuire, welcome back to Creating a Family.
1: Hi. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. um, You know, as I mentioned, IUIs can be used as part of infertility treatment, but they're also used by single women and lesbian couples who are using donor sperm. And we're going to be talking about all of these on today's show. Um, I'm going to want to start with reading a question from Carolyn. She uh, sent us a question that kind of gets us started on uh, uh, how uh, IUIs might be used as part of fertility treatment. She says, My husband and I haven't been able to get pregnant. We've been trying for two and a half years. I'm now 33 and he's 38. They haven't been able to find a reason for us not getting pregnant. We look perfect, which is kind of weird. Do we automatically start with IUI? Um, So that kind of leads us, Dr. McGuire, into the question of what type of diagnosis is most often helped with either uh, IUI IUI versus some other type of fertility treatment such as IVF?
1: Absolutely. So um, artificial insemination itself, the process involves taking um, the partner's sperm or donor sperm and washing it um, to remove some um, chemicals or portions of that called prostaglandins, which could uh, induce an anaphylactic reaction if not removed. Um, It also helps to purify the sample so that there's really only the best moving, uh, best sperm in the sample. That sperm is then placed Um, via a tiny catheter directly into the uterus. And this is beneficial because the vagina is very acidic. It has a lot of mucus in it. And typically, um, during intercourse, most of the sperm sample is actually lost in the vagina. So we can kind of maximize concentration of healthy sperm through doing an artificial insemination. Um, What percentage of sperm
0: does it make it through the, uh, to the cervix, through the cervix, and into the uterus in, in typical intercourse?
1: So um to be honest I'm not sure of the exact percentage but the majority of it does um not make it past the vagina.
0: Okay. So by bypassing the the vagina and and the the mucus in the vagina vagina it gets directly into the um into the uh uterus and from there where does it go?
1: Um and from there the sperm actually stays in Um, cervical crypts and other sort of um, housing areas, if you will, within the uterus. (laughs) And it slowly, um, some of them will swim up towards the egg. And ultimately, the sperm does fertilize the egg in the fallopian tube. Uh, The embryo that results then kind of floats back down the fallopian tube and into the uterine cavity uh, to implant. So it is a bit of a uh, complicated process, but at (laughs) least bypassing the initial part um, should get the sperm closer to the egg.
0: So what type of diagnosis fertility to infertility di- diagnosis is most often helped with IUI? The
1: the very best diagnosis or the the most um the diagnosis which is most helped through IUI is actually cervical factor infertility. So for women who've had a leap or a cone biopsy or other surgeries on their cervix, um these are surgeries that are commonly done for abnormal pap smears. Uh, those women have an even less receptive cervix for uh, sperm transport. So that can be a physical blockade itself for the sperm to get into the uterus and and ultimately meet the egg. So to bypass the cervix in that way is very helpful Um, and those women tend to have a very high pregnancy rate just from artificial insemination alone. Um, That being said, artificial insemination is used for many different other um, diagnoses including unexplained infertility its efficacy for unexplained infertility is debated, Um, and certainly use of artificial insemination alone probably doesn't offer a dramatic improvement in pregnancy versus just timed intercourse in couples that have completely unexplained infertility. Um, Another diagnosis that you could consider using artificial insemination for is very mild male factor infertility, so There are certain parameters within a semen analysis that physicians look for to um, ensure that that couple would have a good chance of conception via either timed intercourse or artificial insemination. Um, So generally, there needs to be at least 15 million sperm per milliliter of fluid. Um, The motility needs to be better than 50%, so more than half the sample should be moving. Um, There are certain volume parameters and shape parameters as well for the sperm. So if there is a borderline concentration issue, you may get some benefit from, again, kind of taking out the weaker sperm, um, concentrating it, and putting it directly into the uterus rather than letting some of the sample get lost in the vagina. There are other parts of the semen analysis, for instance, the sperm shape, which um, is not aided by doing an artificial insemination. So it turns out that human eggs are surrounded by a rather thick membrane, um, and sperm heads need to be perfectly shaped to kind of wiggle their way through and fertilize the egg. So if the sperm shape generally is not perfect, maybe they're more round or there's two heads or for whatever reason they're a bit misshapen, then um, just simply putting the sperm closer to the egg is not going to solve the problem of the sperm actually getting into the egg and fertilizing it. So sorry, yeah, go ahead. that
0: makes sense. Um you know, one of the problems, however, is that at least in the past, certain insurance, and, and let's be honest, a lot of people don't have insurance that will right. cover a fertility treatment, but assuming you do, certain insurance have required in the past, it's almost as a mandatory first step that you try X number of IUIs before they will consider paying for uh, IVF. Is that still something you see?
1: Yes, and it's actually a pretty um, um, interesting requirement. So, yes, regardless of the – well, that's not exactly true. Unless there is a dramatic factor, such as very low sperm count or blocked fallopian tubes, which would um, justify your argument to allow a couple to go directly to IVF, a lot of insurance companies will require sometimes two, three, or six artificial insemination cycles before approving uh, moving on to in vitro fertilization. Um, it's an interesting phenomenon, especially in light of some recent literature that was uh, published on a topic, one in particular called the FAST trial, uh, was yeah. conducted in, in Boston. Um, mm-hmm. And that looked at both the pregnancy rate per cycle and the cost effectiveness of having patients move from Clomid directly to IVF versus having patients move from Clomid to artificial insemination to IVF, and uh, it turns out that moving from Cloma directly to IVF is much more cost effective with about $10,000 less spent per delivery um, and has a higher per cycle chance of pregnancy than taking that longer stepwise route. Um, So based on that study, perhaps insurance companies should rethink their their requirements, but uh, at this time I do see a lot of insurances requiring an IUI as an intermediate step before IVF.
0: Yeah, it's a very interesting thing, and we're going to come back and talk about some some different things that are related to that in just a bit. But I wanted to touch on, um, we've got questions from uh, single women considering using donor sperm as well as lesbian couples, so I kind of want to touch on that before we get into more of the detail. Um, Let's see. This is a question, uh, actually she didn't give her name, so I'm a single mom-to-be, I'm a single mom-to-be and will be trying to get pregnant with donor sperm probably at the beginning of next year. Is it better for me to have the artificial insemination done in the uterus or cervix, IUI versus ICI? So let's talk about, and that would apply with uh, lesbian couples. We actually have a similar question from Shana Um and that's the first part of her question it was asking the difference in pregnancy rates between IUI versus ICI and then she also asked uh, if there was a significant difference in costs between the two so let's talk about intrauterine insemination versus intracervical insemination
1: absolutely so they're actually very similar procedures um the the biggest difference is that the uh, the sperm has to be washed more thoroughly for an intrauterine insemination, um, out of fear for that anaphylactic reaction that you can have if the prostaglandin content is too high, um, in the seminal specimen. So um, they're just the the specimens are processed slightly differently. Although often physicians will use a. IUI processed sperm specimen to do an intracervical. Insemination, too, just to play it safe. Um, so that's the biggest difference be- between the procedures. Now, in terms of pregnancy rate, the pregnancy rate with artificial insemination is slightly better than with intracervical insemination. Um, and really, there's not that much difference in what the patient experiences. There's still a speculum exam, there's still a catheter. It's just a matter of the catheter moving forward by a centimeter or two rather than being just right at the cervix. Um, so in my opinion, it is worth to go, worth it to go through with the full artificial insemination if you're at the point where you're going to do um, an intracervical insemination. Because really the only
0: difference is where the catheter stops, whether it stops right at the cervix or whether it pushes through the cervix and goes into the uterus, Right.
1: That's correct, and it's not a difference in pain um, or anything like that. Most patients have no pain at all with an artificial insemination.
0: Gotcha. So it's just, yeah, it's only a matter of how hard you push. I realize it's a little different from that, but still. Yeah. Okay. Shana had some other questions as well. Now, she she says, uh, my wife and I will be using donor sperm to start our family. Um, All right, she's asked the questions about IUI versus ICI. Uh, She would also says we would really like to do a home home insemination but don't want to if our odds of success are lower. So that's a different form of artificial insemination. Um, Can you talk some to that? We we often call it home insemination, Um, and that tends to be a popular option with um, certain same-sex couples, lesbian couples.
1: Uh, Absolutely. So with a home insemination type of procedure, the sperm or the uh, semen specimen is deposited directly in the vagina and there is not an effort to uh, place it in the uterus itself. This can be done at home, so it can be more of an intimate um, uh, kind of procedure or an intimate um, happening between the couple, uh, which is appealing, I think, as you said, to many same-sex couples. I think it's perfectly fine in in a couple that is otherwise fertile, so have good numbers in terms of their ovarian reserve. There's no known issue with the uterus or the fallopian tubes being blocked. Um, I think it's fine in that case to try home an insemination a couple of times prior to coming in um, to the office for the more medicalized procedure of an artificial insemination. Of course, in any circumstance, you'd want to be careful that the sperm specimen that's being used has been. Properly screened for sexually transmitted diseases, et cetera.
0: And don't you think, if depending on the age of the couple, or the woman who the the, the woman who's trying to get pregnant, that you need to give some thought to how many, uh, how long you ought to try uh, to, to home insemination or any lower odds of success method, just because eight, time is not on your side.
1: Absolutely, and certainly in a in a woman that's older than 35, I wouldn't spend too much time. With a home insemination route, only because um, time is not always on your side, and you wouldn't want to waste some precious months um, uh, on a on a treatment that wasn't as effective. Also, the sperm specimens themselves can be quite expensive too, so um, you know that can be costly to go through a number of different insemin or home home inseminations and then um, inseminations in the office too.
0: Right. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about interuterine insemination and how you can increase your odds of success. Creating a Family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. Of course, we have our Creating a Family page, which you can find at facebook.com slash creatingafamily. We also have a very large, very active, and very supportive support group. It's a closed Facebook group, so you'll have to request to join, and uh, only those um, uh, on within the group can see the post. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash creatingafamily, and you can also connect with me personally, and I am dawn.davenport1. And we love Pinterest around here. We also love Twitter, and you can find us on both of those at Creating a Family. All right. Now I want to talk some, and and it's one of those interesting things when we talked about the insurance issue requiring IUIs. It's always struck me as interesting because once you've moved into or once you're doing an IUI, you have the choice of medicated and unmedicated IUI cycles, and then and then with medication, I think you have the choice between oral meds and, and injectables. So I want to talk some about that. Um, do you generally start with an IUI on oral meds, but by Clomed or, um, or, or Femera or whatever people are using?
1: It uh, it depends a lot actually on the diagnosis um, coming into it. So for women with um, in ovulatory infertility or polycystic ovarian syndrome, Clomid is a wonderful medication, and um, and there wouldn't there wouldn't be a need for the IUI without the Clomid. So we typically would start with the Clomid IUI, and and those couples have a pregnancy rate of about fifty percent in the first three months of trying. So that works really very well um, in women with or couples with unexplained infertility the pregnancy rate with IUI alone is not really different than the pregnancy rate with timed intercourse. Um, And actually, the addition of Clomid um, does not necessarily have a dramatic um, impact on improving the pregnancy rate either. So for couples with unexplained infertility, I do recommend to move directly to gonadotropin artificial insemination, or FSH IUI, um, which is the injectable medicine. Uh, In those couples, sorry, and those no, okay, couple the um the sorry the pregnancy rate with um IUI alone is about 4 to 6% the pregnancy rate with clomid IUI is 6 to 8% and the cl- um, pregnancy rate with FSH and IUI is somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20% depending on um obviously ex- other factors but it makes sense in that group to move directly to the injectables within artificial insemination
0: and this is unexplained infertility.
1: That's right.
0: That's right. Gotcha. All right. So that kind of begs the question of how do we define success when we talk about IUIs. And uh I I I'm, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but I certainly uh we say this a lot on uh on our shows and throughout our website, is that the goal from any form of fertility treatment is one healthy baby. And uh, one of the concerns with uh, what you're calling FSH IUIs or, or IUI with injectable uh, gonadotropin medication is the risk of of multiples. So I wanted to talk some about that. What is the risk of multiples when you're when you're using injectable drugs?
1: Absolutely. Um, so the risk of multiples with injectables is about 20 percent, and that makes sense because um, the basis for the treatment is the idea that these couples who have been having regular intercourse with the release of one egg each month have not had conception. So, the idea behind giving the injectable medicine is to purposely make them ovulate two, three, four eggs per month to improve the chance of conception, of course, coupled with the artificial insemination as well. But if you're having a woman ovulate two or three eggs each month, then it makes sense that her risk of twins or even higher order multiples would be higher um, and it's approximately twenty percent.
0: What about people with PCOS? Um, Because we hear about some of the more uh, famous recent um, uh, multiples. Um, The um, Kate Plus 8, uh, I believe her, she was PCOS with injectable and some of the other uh, large, um, uh, some of the quints more recent. In fact, Probably a lot of the uh, higher order multitudes have resulted from women receiving, and at least some of them I know for were diagnosed with PCOS. So, what about PCOS? Uh, some a woman with PCOS uh, going through a IUI cycle with uh, injectable ovulatory stimulating medication.
1: Absolutely. So, um, women with PCOS often actually can be pretty tricky to maintain to monitor and to control their ovarian response to the injectable medicine. They'll often be resistant or their bodies will be resistant to the medication initially and their estrogen level won't budge, no follicles grow, and then all of a sudden they hit a magic point and their ovaries take off like a rocket ship and five or six eggs grow. So um, it is absolutely imperative that all women, but especially women with polycystic ovarian syndrome who are having COH-IUI or FSH-IUI, the injectables, be monitored by trained physicians so that if, in fact, they do get five or six eggs to grow, um, their doctor can say, hey, you know what? This cycle isn't working out. There's too many eggs here. It's not safe to proceed. Um, the alternative to doing that is to proceed and then have a fetal reduction procedure, which essentially means if there's more than twins, to reduce the that um, number of fetuses to two. But ideally, the physician will be watching closely with uh, daily or every other day monitoring so that the medication dose can be adjusted in an effort to have really only one egg be released. In those women with PCOS, where the issue is not um, that the sperm and the egg aren't meeting, but that the egg isn't being ovulated at all. And so the
0: monitoring is, is done which way? Is it a vaginal ultrasound?
1: Typically, a transvaginal ultrasound and also a, a serum estradiol level, um, just to make sure again that there's less you know, three or four follicles, no more than that, and that the estrogen hopefully would stay less than a thousand psychograms per mil. You know, but the
0: reality for couples that I think sometimes they don't think about ahead of time is that a significant cost associated with fertility treatment is in the medication, in the injectable medications, the gonadotropins. So by the time you've you've have spent a fair amount of money getting these injectables, when you, then and then if you, if your body does overproduce eggs and then you have five or six eggs, and your doctor suggests that you cancel the cycle. You're out uh, boatloads of money, oftentimes multiple thousands of dollars, usually. So, how does that work at that point? How, how receptive are people are, are uh, to just saying, "Okay, well, you know, that was a, let's just scratch the cycle" at that point?
1: Right. Absolutely. It can be incredibly frustrating, especially for, like you said, women with polycystic ovarian syndrome who initially had a ver- had very resistant ovaries and were on the medication for days and days with no response. When all of a sudden. A profound response is seen um, and uh, you know I've seen many tears shed, but I think when you show the patient all the follicles that are there um, and she's seen um, the shows about multiples and she knows uh sort of the consequences of both to her and the babies of having so many then um i I have never had an I've never had an issue where the patient really um, refused to cancel this cycle uh, when it's indicated. What about
0: at that point people will ask, can we switch to an IVF cycle where you go through the egg retrieval? Okay, I've I've grown all these eggs. (laughs) I've produced all these eggs. Uh, Can you just go in now and harvest these eggs Um, and and let's use them, let's say we'll do IVF. Is that an option?
1: So it is, and um, some insurances will be receptive to that and allow the patient just to convert it over to IVF. Of course, the cycle wasn't set up exactly how it would be if we were just trying to do i v f from the get go so sometimes the follicle development is a is a bit disynchronous there are you know there's a cohort of six or seven eggs that are bigger, and the rest are smaller but um depending on the that particular patient's response and their willingness to try uh to move on to i v f that does make sense um in some cases, especially as you said not to waste that effort for um the medicine. The cost of the medicine and all the monitoring to that point.
0: Well, to say nothing of you know having gone through having to you know the the wear and tear on the on the woman's body. You know that at least in, if you can. But the timing um, at that point is it possible to do a fresh? Is the timing such that you're off sync with the window of implantation that you may not be able to do a fresh cycle?
1: Um, So so it depends. And often they actually can do a fresh cycle still. The um, implantation window is relative to the the time that the uterus was initially exposed to progesterone. So as long as they haven't ovulated, um, typically we can still do a fresh transfer as long as the estrogen doesn't get too high. And in these women that are very what we call brittle polycystic ovarian syndrome patients and the estrogen gets high kind of at the drop of a hat, um then uh, we would often freeze the embryos not for dyssynchrony but for a risk of ovarian hyperstimulation
0: yeah that would that would make sense and of course this also begs the issue that the the couple can afford ivf um and can for assuming that insurance is not paying for it and they're paying for it uh out of pocket they they have to make the decision if if they can if they can afford it at that point
1: that's right. Yeah, and it it does become tricky. I think in couples that are paying for um, fertility tr- treatment completely out of pocket, IVF can actually make sense in them um, for the reasons that we had talked about before with the fast trial and that the per delivery um, cost of or the cost per delivery is lower in women who go right to IVF. But for couples whose insurance only cover artificial insemination, it does become very tricky, and and those are the women who are more inclined to cancel. I I believe.
0: Yeah, because at that point, it's being. It's being covered. So in your opinion, is it possible to do a medicated with injectable medication, IUI cycle, what you called an FSH cycle, with low enough odds of multiples if, if uh, with uh, experience monitoring? Is it possible to, to do it
1: safely? It's possible to do it safely, to some degree, I guess, with a caveat or an asterisk. Only because um twins themselves are not always safe. And and you've talked about this um plenty on the show too. Yeah. Um uh, while well, most twins do find, um they are deliver early more often than singletons and um certainly the the greatest tragedies I've ever seen are couples who try for so long to have a conception and then they conceive twins and they're so happy but um you know later face a devastating um, delivery, early delivery or, or mm-hmm. problems in the pregnancy related to having two.
0: We underestimate the most twins are born healthy, but the reality is if you look at the stats, you know, just, just cerebral palsy alone, It's I, I don't know it off the top of my head, but it's, it's significantly greater risk for twins versus singletons um, as well as other, you know, complications. So, yeah, it's a Tends to be a bit of a, of a of a frustration, and I understand it from the patient standpoint that um, there's there's a there's a lot of of draw to the idea of an instant family, but uh, we try to educate people that there there comes but you have to weigh the risk to your instant family um, and, and to you as well. So and that's one of the the big concerns we have with IUIs, particularly if it's um, yeah, with injectables. You are listening to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption, and today we're talking about inner uterine inseminations and how to increase your odds of success. We are really glad to have you with us. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our weekly e-newsletter. We have two newsletters, one for infertility and one for adoption. They both come out once a week. We let you know about the latest developments in infertility as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topics and whatever new resources we've added to our site that week. We'd love to have you on our list. You can... Uh, value privacy and never share your address with anyone, you can sign up for the weekly newsletter at the top right of any page of our website, creatingafamily.org. We have a question that we received from someone. She says, my husband has male factor infertility, low volume. And we have sex every other day during ovulation time. We will be doing an i u i will doing an i u i mean that we have to forego having sex on those days in favor of him giving a semen sample for the i u i procedure. Having a normal sex life during infertility is hard enough. Please say that there is an advanced capture capture and release program for his boys so that our <laughs> sex life is not obliterated um that's you know the the fact that, yeah, as she points out, having a normal sex life during infertility is hard. So uh, how does, uh, for someone who would like to be having sex every other day during their ovulation time, is that still possible uh, if you are uh, doing sperm samples for IUI?
1: So um, generally it is recommended that the male abstain for two to three days prior to the collection of the specimen. Um, that being said, um, I'm not sure how much of an effect that truly has on the chance of success. Um, and certainly we at times do IUIs back-to-back, and it's not always the case that the specimen on the second day is lower or worse quality than the first. In fact, often it's better than the first. So I have oh, my really? personal, d- uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. So um, I have some my personal doubts that that sort of, rule or guideline of two to three days of absence is absolutely necessary, but um, it certainly is currently the recommendation. Um, So for a couple who, you know, doesn't want to stop having intercourse during that time period, or perhaps their partner happens to be traveling or other things like that, we can, and and most fertility clinics can, freeze or cryopreserve a specimen in advance of the IUI day. Um, and then um, it's just thawed and used for insemination when the time is right.
0: And is uh, do you see a difference in the quality of the um, sperm sample if it's been frozen versus fresh?
1: A, a small decrease in the quality, or not the quality so much as the concentration. So if um, you're starting off with a good concentration anyway, it doesn't really matter. But if um a particular partner has a borderline concentration and it's probably better to use a fresh specimen as opposed to a frozen one. Gotcha. Okay. Now we've
0: I want to uh kind of switch gears here and talk about things that, that couples who are uh going through a artificial insemination can do that might give them a slight edge. I, 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 w- I would be interested to know if any of these would be significant. And some of the lifestyle ones might be. But um, I, uh, tips for people who are trying to conceive. Let's start with foods. Are there any suggested foods that uh, you're getting ready to do an IUI, uh, you, know, you know, it's coming up in the next couple of months, things that you should be focusing on or your partner should be focusing on eating or avoiding
1: Absolutely. So um, this is actually a very common question among my patients. I think it's something that people can really kind of wrap their minds around and something that they have control over, um, which is kind of a unique feature during fertility care where a lot of things are outside of a patient's control. So uh, I do get this question a lot. Um, and and actually, the answer is not that um, complicated. It's sort of what doctors have been recommending for for eons that you know a balanced diet is um, recommended. Um, you know, some will lean towards a more low carb diet, especially in women with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, you know, try to avoid excess sweets and fats, and but eat a healthy but balanced diet. Um, obviously, alcohol, too much caffeine, those kinds of things are to be avoided. But at the same time. Um, we don't want patients to lose complete control of their lives or have no fun during fertility treatment, so, um, you know, a glass of wine from time to time is okay. Um, uh, certainly after the artificial insemination, while you're waiting for the pregnancy test, I would discourage uh, alcohol intake, but, um, but in, during this cycle and leading up to that, it's okay to lead a normal, healthy uh, lifestyle.
0: Okay so just uh, our standard balanced diet a variety of foods aiming for a lot of different colors uh in your food uh, uh what about protein um what is considered the optimum amount of of protein to be consuming
1: uh, so again there isn't there isn't an optimum amount per se. Um in women that have polycystic ovarian syndrome, it is better to increase the protein intake and lower the carbohydrate intake. Um but uh exclusively ingesting protein um sort of in an Atkins diet uh, style would not be good either. Um as that does have effect on sort of the general chemistry um within the body and wouldn't be ideal in a person attempting conception it's It's better to kind of stay um at the top of that bell curve in the normal normal range of all uh carbohydrates proteins uh fats that kind of thing
0: okay, so we've talked about diet. What about other specific lifestyle choices that that people can make? that uh might make their um the the i u i be successful versus having to go through the procedure again and again, so lifestyle issues
1: absolutely so um again I think the the main focus should be on balance and uh well being so um you know continuing with exercise is fine, although I wouldn't probably um start training for a triathlon <laughs> during the uh typical Um, IUI cycle, it is fine to go for walks and maintain a normal um, exercise regimen. Um, Also, um, you know, again, getting out and doing things that you enjoy to um, have things other than fertility kind of on your mind are important. So keep going out with your friends, you know, go out with your husband. Um, Don't make the fertility the sole focus of all of your attention or um, it will it will cause you a lot of stress and um, stress not is probably not the best um, or most helpful condition to have while trying to conceive. Um, acupuncture is something else there's, uh, that people have tried. There is no data to suggest that acupuncture has a profound impact on improving pregnancy rates, but it certainly does help patients deal with the diagnosis and the treatment. Involved in infertility much better, Um, and there is uh, mixed results relating to how the degree to which it actually does improve pregnancy rates.
0: I was going to ask about uh, what have you been seeing? I haven't. It's something this area I'm interested in, and we've done a couple of shows, but I haven't seen anything recently from the research standpoint that's talked about efficacy of acupuncture for increasing pregnancy results with IUI or IVF or any form of of treatment. Have you seen anything uh, like within the last year or two?
1: I haven't seen anything within the last year or two related specifically to pregnancy rates, but um, again, sort of the overall feeling of patients undergoing fertility treatments is better and improved um, in those that take the time for acupuncture.
0: Okay, got it. Before we go off of lifestyle choices and move to uh, talking about alternative treatments. Uh, what about things like smoking? Is there We know smoking is not good for our health. That, I think, is, is pretty well established. Uh, but has there been anything uh, done that specifically talks about smoking in relation to success for infertility treatment and, in particular, IUIs?
1: Absolutely. So um, there's a greater degree of infertility overall in smokers compared to non-smokers. Um, uh, miscarriage rate is higher in smokers. Pregnancy complication is higher in smokers. Menopause occurs earlier in women who smoke. So there's often an issue related to diminished ovarian reserve in in women who smoke. And then, of course, after the baby is delivered, um, the the problems continue, and there's a higher risk of sudden infant death syndrome and um, asthma in the um, infant. So whether actually it's the patient herself who's a smoker or the partner is a smoker, it doesn't have a helpful Impact um, on the chance of a conception and then a healthy uh, live birth.
0: Well, you addressed uh, you you touched on my next question, which is secondhand smoke. So, if the woman is not a smoker or or has stopped smoking, what about the risk of secondhand smoke?
1: Right. Absolutely. So. there's less data on that, although certainly there's less data on that with regard to fertility in particular, although there is um, significant data to show that secondhand smoke does also impact outcomes of pregnancy. So, um, you know, you work so hard to have this conception, and then it would be a shame to um, damage the pregnancy itself uh, through exposure to secondhand smoke. Um, and that obviously applies also after delivery to the children themselves. And one has to imagine that if a patient can reduce her fertility and increase her miscarriage rate by smoking herself, then there's probably at least a subtle impact on inhaling um, secondhand smoke from a partner. And when you said
0: uh, out pregnancy outcomes, do you mean uh, there's uh, there's research that would say that exposure to secondhand smoke increases your odds of miscarriage or, or premature birth? Preterm delivery, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So pre-term mm-hmm. deliveries so are probably one inter- interesting. Okay. All right. I'd like to take a moment now to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show every week as well as all the resources we provide at Creating a Family. We have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to assisted reproductive law, including providing a gestational surrogacy matching program as well as legal services for independent surrogacy, egg donation, and embryo donation matters. They also have an adoption law practice as well. We have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They are a pioneer in offering embryo donation and adoption services to clients throughout the world through their Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program, and they recently celebrated the birth of their 400th baby. And Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over twenty years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. All right, let's talk uh we'll we'll go ahead and talk about other alternative treatments. We've we've mentioned acupuncture. What about uh Chinese medicine? Uh herbs, Chinese medicine, other uh has there been any research Recently, again, we've done some shows in the past on this, um, and the, the frustrating thing is that if you talk with uh, Chinese medicine specialists, they are frustrated that that our uh, that that the Western approach to research they don't feel like is particularly conducive to to, to teasing out the uh, efficacy of their of their treatment. But nonetheless, um, I can't help it; I still have to ask about research. Uh, so, so what um what what do we know about Chinese medicine is that uh worth the while for people who want to give it their all to increase their chances to the to highest degree possible
1: So um I unfortunately don't know that much about uh the specifics of herbal or Chinese uh, medication remedies for infertility so would um suggest to f- sort of follow the guidelines of the original provider on that that being said, um, a lot of different supplements and herbs may contain um, hormonal properties. For instance, soy has estrogenic um, properties to it, and those may affect um, the progression of the IUI cycle, the development of the endometrial lining. So I would I would advise caution when supplementing um, an IUI type of stimulation with other herbs and um, supplements as it's unclear what, what effect they would have on the cycle itself and the ability of the embryo to implant.
0: And you would certainly want your reproductive endocrinologist to know about what it is that you, are, um, you might be taking. All right. And what about meditation?
1: Absolutely. So um, the sort of mind-body continuum, I think, is important. Again, there's not a great deal of data out there that I'm aware of to suggest um, improved pregnancy rates with meditation, but um, these type of mindful behaviors, yoga and meditation and and the like, are helpful in reducing stress um, for patients who are undergoing fertility Treatments and that can be helpful not only for the success of the cycle but also for that patient's overall experience, the health of their marriage, the health of their relationship, their um, attitude toward the pregnancy, um, and ultimately towards their child down the road.
0: Let's talk a little about the impact of stress. It's a, it's a touchy subject. Uh, the uh, The reality is, being infertile is is for most people extremely stressful. Uh, depending on, on, you know, it, it ranks right up there as one of the most stressful life events. So when somebody is stressed to the max because of a disease and and you tell them that they're, that they're not, that, that one of the, the symptoms of the disease, the inability to get pregnant, is because of the stress, it's kind of a, a catch-22, yeah. and it makes people want to scream or rip their hair out or, or smack you. So it is a touchy subject but there has been some some research on the uh, effects of stress. So what how does stress impact our ability to conceive?
1: Right. So um there's there's again not a lot of I guess the good news is there's not a lot of data to suggest that stress has a profound negative impact on the ability to conceive. So um couple even if a woman is very very stressed out and unable to sleep at night and Um, experiencing um, mood changes related to that, she can rest assured that despite all those symptoms, at least her chance of pregnancy is probably not profoundly affected. Um, That being said, those types of symptoms certainly would be expected to affect her interpersonal relationships, um, her sense of self, her, you know, potentially her um, feelings during the future pregnancy uh, that will ensue and also um, after childbirth too, to have experienced such a, a stressful and even sometimes traumatic um portion of one's life.
0: So if I'm hearing you it's perhaps less of the actual conception other than um for your mental health and your enjoyment of life uh stress has more impact on that. Is that what I'm, am I am hearing you correctly?
1: That's right. And actually that that should be um somewhat reassuring to patients I think that because it um if people kind of do what they can to reduce their stress in their life, that's great. But even if some stress is there, it's not um, It's not going to have a big effect on the chance that they will have uh, a pregnancy.
0: And it's almost, I mean, unless you don't care one way or the other, uh, whether or not you get pregnant, it's really hard to say, I'm just going to be, you know, I'm going to treat this in a non-stressful way. But there are definitely things and and we've got resources and and I know your uh website too I'm sure RMA New Jersey's website has uh resources on on reducing stress to the extent to the extent you can um let's talk some about supplements um there are a lot of if you go to health food stores or whatever um or even just look on the internet there are definitely um supplements that are encouraged for people who are trying to get pregnant both for the male as as well as for the female. And since mild male factor uh is a uh potentially can be solved through the IUI's um or interuterine inseminations, let's talk some about uh supplements that might be are are supplements effective for uh mild uh, male factor infertility.
1: Uh, absolutely. So, um, there aren't a great deal of supplements that have, again, a dramatic imp- impact on the semen analysis, but one of the ones that has been suggested is antioxidant treatment for men with teratospermia or abnormally shaped sperm. Um, so, uh, you know, vitamin C, uh, selenium, other types of antioxidants have been used as supplements in an effort to ha- improve a man's sperm shape. Um, it's unlikely again to have a profound effect in you know, improving the sample's percent of normal sh- of normal sperm shape by twenty percent or thirty percent, but can increase that percentage by a few percent uh potentially.
0: Okay, and that's the antioxidant treatment. Is that did I hear you correctly?
1: That's right, antioxidants. Um, okay. One, one male supplement that is sometimes misinterpreted to be helpful is testosterone. So um, sometimes men will take testosterone supplements in an effort to improve their sperm count when this is actually um, giving them the opposite effect. So by taking testosterone supplements, a man will decrease his sperm, sometimes even to an undetectable level. So testosterone is definitely not a good supplement to take.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And and uh, do men take that because of the... Uh, uh, misinformation of increasing their um, sperm count, or, or their motility, or, or shape, or are they taking it for other reasons? And if so, what are the other reasons that typical uh, that, that a man might typically have reasons that they might have for taking testosterone?
1: Absolutely. So, um, yes. Yeah, so sometimes people do, or men do, take testosterone um, in sort of a misinformed or for misinformed reasons to improve sperm count. But there is another contingent of um, male patients who are placed on testosterone because they presented to their primary care physician with lethargy, decreased libido, um, and other symptoms like that, and they could be tested and found to have a low testosterone level. Um, and when this is the case, testosterone treatment is great. It will help those patients to feel much better. It will give them some of their sex drives back give them some more energy, um, just as hormone supplements can sometimes help women who are going through menopause. But if that man happens to be trying to conceive, then testosterone is not the right treatment for him. There are other forms of medicine, for instance, HCG injections, that can improve the testosterone level without decreasing the sperm count. So treatments like that should be considered as first line for men who are still trying to conceive.
0: Okay. That makes sense. So let's say that's for the men. For a woman, are there uh, supplements that uh, she should uh, be on that would help increase her chances of success?
1: Absolutely. So um, there actually aren't a great deal of supplements with um, definitive proven efficacy. Prenatal vitamins with a good um, amount of folic acid, of course, are important. Not as much during the infertility period as during that early pregnancy and pregnancy period when the fetus is requiring um, uh, those nutrients for itself to grow and and develop appropriately. So prenatal vitamins should be started in the preconception window in in infertile women just to build a base of nutrients so that um, their body is fully prepared to take care of that fetus when in fact they do have a conception. Um, The other supplement that has gotten a great deal of press and and may have some efficacy is called coenzyme Q10. Um, This supplement would work to improve the energy producing organelles within a cell. So they help cells produce energy this, of course, is really important in infertility patients whose eggs and whose embryos are needing to divide and grow um, at a really a profound rate. So, coenzyme Q10 um, supplementation may be efficacious. Other supplements have less data behind them. BHEA is one that a lot of women take, although there was a recent article to suggest that it really is not very effective. Um, and potentially not at all effective in improving uh, pregnancy rates.
0: And, and people are taking DHEA before, I mean, during treatment or before conception. That's the that's the it's the attempt to increase their uh, fertility.
1: That's right. it's sort of pr- uh, the idea is that it would provide a building block for the hormones that need to be produced uh, during follicle development and then ultimately ovulation. But um, there was a, a study recently. Which was fairly large. That suggested it does not help improve fertility.
0: I was just going to ask if it is it a uh, is it a large enough study for um, that 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 we would would warrant us paying attention?
1: Uh, yes, and, and I'm trying to remember the authors, and I can't just now, but um, but so I could get That's back okay. to you with that. Yeah. Well, you
0: know what? Do me a favor. Um, I w- I'll try to remember to send you a um, an email asking, and we'll link it in the blog tomorrow for four people. Okay, great. So coenzyme q10 possibly is effective although we're not certain the degree of effectiveness but dhea probably not that effective is that kind of the summation of what you were just saying
1: that's right exactly and there's a, there are other supplements that you might take during a cycle under the um supervision of your physician uh, one of them is growth hormone um, but the efficacy of growth hormone is also debated. Um, it's only available by prescription. It is injectable and it's quite expensive. And you would only want to take it during a certain part of your cycle. Um, but that is another supplement that has been looked at.
0: Yeah, it's an it's an area of 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 interest in research, um, and I'm hoping there'll be some more at the American Society of Reproductive Medicine conference uh, coming up in October. Um, because we get a lot of questions from people, and I think you you alluded to it um, uh, probably when we were first talking about. Uh, we shifted and talked about things that we can do to increase success. For a lot of people, everything about infertility uh, is feels out of their control. So. I think that's one reason there is a great deal of interest in the patient community because this is like one thing that they can do. Give me a pill, give me something to tell me what to eat, tell me what not to do, tell me a supplement to take because it puts a little bit of control back in. So I I so get that. I get the I get the need for that.
1: Absolutely. We have
0: come to the end of our time together. I so appreciate this show. Thank you so much, Dr. Marcy McGuire, for being our guest today. Uh Audience, if you have enjoyed this show and want to help us grow, do us a favor and give us a rating on iTunes. We are ranked as the number one show in this topic area by uh, iTunes, and uh, by far we're the number one ranked show, and we really want to continue to keep our place there. It also helps others find us, so it's kind of a win-win across the board. So you can go to iTunes, type in the words Creating a Family, and you can give us a ranking there, or you can go to our website. Website the radio page creating dot org slash category slash radio dash show that's a long u r l isn't it uh and uh you can click on iTunes there and it will take you straight to the ratings page it's a star rating really easy to do if you want to participate in a discussion on the topics of this show, you can check out my blog tomorrow at creating dot org slash blog also to get more information about dr marcy mcguire r or, or rma new jersey you can go to their website which is rmanj.com or you can go to our website they have been one of our wonderful long-term sponsors and their logo is on the right hand page of, of all of the pages of our site and you can click on their logo and it will take you directly to there thank you so much for joining us today and i will see you next week
1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the...